0: Welcome to Bite Size Battles. At Horatio Nelson's funeral in 1806, his titles were inscribed in his coffin and read out by the garter king at arms, Sir Isaac Hurd. The Most Noble Lord Horatio Nelson, Viscount and Baron Nelson of the Nile and of Burnham Thorpe and of Hilborough. Knight of the Most Honourable Order of the Bath, Vice-Admiral of the White Squadron of the Fleet. Commander-in-Chief of His Majesty's Ships and Vessels in the Mediterranean. Duke of Bronte in the Kingdom of Sicily. Knight Grand Cross of the Sicilian Order of Saint Ferdinand and of Merit, Member of the Ottoman Order of the Crescent. Knight Grand Commander of the Order of Saint Joachim. Nelson's array of titles reflected his remarkable achievements and extraordinary life, which had ended 11 weeks earlier at the moment of his greatest victory. Because on the 21st of October 1805, his fleet took on the combined might of the navies of the French and Spanish empires. He knew that if he failed, Napoleon Bonaparte would bring his all-conquering army across the English Channel to Britain. Just 27 Royal Navy ships of the line would face 33 of the Franco-Spanish. But Nelson was confident despite his numerical weakness. In fact, he was so confident that he told his flag captain and friend, Captain Hardy, that he expected to take 20 enemy ships that day. His confidence was born of the tactical surprise he intended to give the French and Spanish and which he had spent weeks repeating to his captains over and over again, until every man knew his role. That surprise was as simple as it was innovative, as brilliant as it was risky. Welcome to the fourth episode of history's greatest naval battles, the Battle of Trafalgar. It was dawn when Nelson ordered the attack. The French and Spanish, under Admiral Villeneuve, had emerged from the port of Cadiz just two days earlier. Villeneuve hadn't really wanted to sail, worried about the location of the Royal Navy, and particularly Nelson himself. Ever since Nelson had annihilated a French fleet at the Battle of the Nile seven years earlier, Nelson's fame among his enemies inspired trepidation. But Napoleon, who was sitting with his army at Boulogne waiting for the fleet to arrive, sent him a stinging rebuke, accusing him of cowardice. That got him moving. Still, Villeneuve's heart sank when the Royal Navy hove into view, with Nelson's own colours flying. He was no coward, though, and no sloth, either. As his Franco-Spanish fleet outnumbered the British, Villeneuve decided the best formation to use was a wide arc. The accepted naval wisdom of the day was for fleet battles to be fought in two lines, facing each other in a maritime slugging match. As such, Nelson would have to enter Villeneuve's arc with his smaller number of ships and be battered to bits from three sides. It wasn't a bad plan, had Nelson played by the rules but Nelson had displayed his tactical ingenuity time and again during his naval career. At the Nile, he hadn't just dutifully lined his ships up and slugged it out with the French like they expected him to. He divided his fleet into two squadrons, one of which did line up, while the other simply went around the end of the French ships and lined up on the opposite side too. Now, the British ships poured cannon fire on the hapless French from both sides devastating them. Had Villeneuve properly studied that battle, he might have had a clue as to what was about to happen to him. Nelson divided his fleet into two squadrons, just like the Nile. His plan was to take on the Franco-Spanish fleet from both sides, just like the Nile too. But he was too outnumbered to simply send one squadron around the end of their line like the Nile because it's likely each force would have been taken apart piecemeal before they could be in position. Instead, Nelson planned not to go around the enemy line, but through it, in a daring do-or-die plan that became the hallmark of British naval ingenuity. As Villeneuve watched on curiously, Nelson's two squadrons formed up in columns, facing straight at him, With just two ships leading the British lines, they aimed directly at a point one-third along the Franco-Spanish arc. If Nelson could pierce their line there, the two British columns would then turn on the rear two-thirds of Villeneuve's fleet, dividing themselves along both their front and back. The French and Spanish would be pummeled to dust from both sides at point-blank range, and in the light wind that day, the other third of the French and Spanish fleet would be nearly incapable of turning back to help until it was too late. The only problem was that, as the British columns approached, the two ships in the lead would be subjected to the withering broadsides of almost the entire Franco-Spanish arc, and unable to return fire in any meaningful way. If Villeneuve's fleet could destroy or disable the lead British ships, and then the two behind, and the two behind. The battle would be over before it really began. This was the enormous risk Nelson took, but he rolled the dice, confident in his ship's ability to absorb punishment and in his men's superior seamanship and gunnery. So, as the sun rose off Cape Trafalgar, the signals were given, and the British ships were made ready for action in ten crisp minutes. Cooking fires were extinguished, cabin walls removed, all movables stored and secured, the decks watered and spread with sand, gunnery teams formed up, ammunition distributed, marines assembled, cannons rolled out, gun holes thrown open. In the lead was the HMS Royal Sovereign, and Nelson's own flagship, victory. They spent 45 minutes approaching the French and Spanish arc, and when the first cannonballs began to fly at them, Nelson sent a signal to his fleet, England expects that every man will do his duty. As the British fleet threw itself into the teeth of the French and Spanish fire, Nelson's sailors and marines roared. Those were 45 minutes of hell for the British, and in particular for Victory and Royal Sovereign. Running directly towards Villeneuve's fleet, they were unable to turn their ships to return fire, and instead endured a terrible pounding. As cannonballs roared in, damage and death began. Captain Hardy took a massive splinter in the foot. Part of Victory's mast was brought down. And her steering wheel was shot away. Men had to steer her using ropes for the rest of the battle, which had barely yet begun. But still they came on. Closer and closer they drew, increasing both the intensity of Franco Spanish fire and the imminence of the moment of truth. Royal Sovereign had drawn ahead of Victory and was about to burst through the French and Spanish line when she was hit. By a full broadside from the French ship, the Fugueux. Reeling, she pressed on, passing the stern of the massive 112 gun Spanish ship, Santa Anna, holding her fire until the perfect moment, when finally she opened up everything she had. A full Royal Sovereign broadside rippled thunder, pouring fire and iron into Santa Anna. And so catastrophic was it that it's estimated that 400 of her crew died instantly. Royal Sovereign was damaged from her running, but she was through the line and now swung to Santa Anna's beam, where she exchanged devastating broadsides with her. Now the French and Spanish ships close by Santa Anna began to surround Royal Sovereign, and for a while it was deadly hot business on board the British ship until the others of Royal Sovereign's Column caught up and drove into the hellish melee. Victory headed straight for the French ship Redoubtable, but finding no way through the line simply rammed her, while firing simultaneous broadsides in two directions into the French and Spanish flagships, Bucentor and Santissima Trinidad. If you're getting an image of a mad, reckless Rambo-style warlord, rushing headlong into battle, all guns blazing at multiple simultaneous enemies, you've just about got it. But Nelson wasn't mad or reckless, merely daring, aggressive, ingenious, as the Royal Navy demanded and trained all its commanders to be. Both the British columns were now through the Franco-Spanish arc, and as each British ship now swung either side of the line, the firefight began in earnest. The noise must have been an incredible cacophony of shouting in three languages, of enormous wooden hulls colliding, masts and rigging snapping, sails flapping, muskets firing, lead balls whistling, broadsides erupting, injured men screaming, orders snapping. The British crews were better trained, better led, and better drilled than their enemies, and could deliver three broadsides for every two from the French and Spanish. They double shotted their cannon too, meaning, in addition to a huge and solid iron ball, cannons were loaded with grapeshot on top. Grapeshot was basically bags or canisters of musket balls, and when fired from a cannon, would rake through the decks and bowels of a ship carving through men like butter. At one point, the double firing of ball and grapeshot became so appalling that the crews in some French ships closed their gun ports altogether, trying to escape the fire. The wounds of 18th and 19th century naval warfare were truly shocking. As well as grapeshot, the heavy iron cannonballs would rip through the wood of the ship, Sending giant shards and splinter shrapnel in all directions, causing horrific injuries. Limbs could easily be lost in a flash, or to the surgeon's knife, should he think it necessary, which it very often was. Chain and link shot was designed to bring down rigging and masts, crushing anyone underneath and throwing to decks or the sea anyone stationed aloft. Chain and link shot fired at deck level could easily decapitate a man or sever his torso in half. Cannons forced loose in the chaos could easily flatten a man to a pulp, or if he was lucky, simply crush a limb. And while the mighty ships exchanged crushing broadsides at point-blank range, marines on deck and in the rigging used swivel cannons and rifles to fire at one another, aiming particularly for officers. The men of both fleets endured this horror, but it was the French and Spanish who were coming off worst, thanks to the rapidity of British fire and double-shotting. Villeneuve's fleet didn't roll over though. Naval warfare wasn't all broadsides and grapeshot. Still practiced was the time-honoured tradition of boarding. Indeed, if you did this well enough, you could capture an enemy ship more or less intact, a hugely valuable and celebrated prize. And this is exactly what the men of the French ship Redoubtable tried to do with Nelson's own flagship, Victory. The captain of the Redoubtable, Captain Lucas, later described the action to Napoleon, which I'm paraphrasing. Surrounded with fire and smoke, I was only able to discern at intervals the ships in my immediate neighbourhood. Then the Victory ran foul of us, dropping alongside and shearing off aft, so that our poop deck lay alongside her quarter deck. Grappling irons were thrown on board her, and at the same time our broadside was discharged, resulting in a terrible slaughter. Then a heavy fire of musketry opened up and more than 200 grenades were flung on board her. Her decks were strewn with the dead and wounded. It was at this point that the fateful moment occurred. A sniper in Redoubtable's rigging sighted Nelson, took aim and fired a shot which went through his collarbone and spine and lodged in his back. He was immediately carried below deck as he said, They finally succeeded. I'm dead. It was at this point that Captain Lucas ordered his men to board the Victory, and Victory's gunners were urgently called up on deck to defend her alongside the ship's marines and sailors. A furious hand-to-hand fight erupted on her deck. Pistols firing, swords clashing, hatchets cleaving, bloody hands throttling. Eventually, the French were beaten back in the brutal melee, and the British ship the Temeraire suddenly drew up alongside the redoubtable. Captain Lucas said to Napoleon, We were immediately under the full fire of her artillery, discharged almost with muzzles touching. It's impossible to describe the carnage produced by the murderous broadside of this ship. More than 200 of our brave men were killed or wounded by it. With British broadsides battering her incessantly, soon the redoubtable was sinking. Everywhere else in the battle were similar stories. The British ships Neptune, Leviathan and Conqueror pummeled Villeneuve's flagship into submission. Royal Sovereign did the same with Santa Anna. Leviathan brought down the San Augustino's masts and boarded her. The French Achille was hammered by broadsides until a fire reached her magazines, when she blew up in a catastrophic explosion. Shortly before the battle's end, Nelson, below deck on the victory and being given water to sip, was told that 15 French and Spanish ships had been captured. Knowing that he had won a resounding victory, he replied, Thank God I have done my duty. He left affectionate letters for his lover, Emma Hamilton, and their daughter, Horatia, gave instructions to Hardy for the fleet, and slowly faded. As his voice grew quiet amid the continuing thunder of battle, he said, Kiss me, Hardy. Captain Hardy knelt down and kissed him on the forehead, and he and the surgeon stayed with Nelson as he died, which he did at 4.30 in the afternoon. It had been three hours after he had been shot. The battle was all but over, and the Franco-Spanish vanguard, the third of the fleet which Nelson had deliberately ignored when he burst through their lines, saw the writing on the wall, and fled back to Cadiz. As they passed by the continued fighting, they cynically fired broadsides into the general melee, striking friend and foe alike. Nelson's exquisite tactical nous had won the Royal Navy a stunning victory, even in the moment of his own death. At the end of the day, the Franco-Spanish had lost 22 ships. While the British lost none. 21 of those had been captured, beating even Nelson's own pre-battle prediction of 20. British dead and wounded numbered nearly 1600, but Franco-Spanish dead, wounded and captured, while never confirmed, is thought to have reached 16,000. Despite the ferocity of the battle, once it was over, the British worked hard to rescue Frenchmen and Spaniards struggling in the sea or adrift on ravaged burning ships. Napoleon, in the meantime, had broken camp at Boulogne, uncertain about where Villeneuve was or how long he would be. It's amazing to think today in the age of instant communication that it would take weeks or months for any news to be heard, and by the time of Trafalgar, Napoleon was already marching against the Austrians and Russians. But that doesn't mean he had forgotten about invading Britain, just that it would have to wait. He had written to one of his generals saying that once he had achieved peace with the Austro-Russians, he would return to Boulogne, and another letter in which he had ordered the maintenance of a major military presence in the city. The threat to Britain clearly wasn't gone. On the 2nd of December 1805, Napoleon decimated the Austro Russian army at the famous Battle of Austerlitz. The peace which followed just three weeks later would have allowed Napoleon to consider moving back to Boulogne and prepare for the invasion of Britain as his letters suggested he would. But Nelson's victory at Trafalgar had robbed Napoleon of any opportunity he might have had to do so. Trafalgar meant Britain could continue fighting, supporting the Portuguese, blockading the French fleets in their ports, disrupting its commerce, and of course, allowing the Duke of Wellington to win the Battle of Waterloo nine years later. Without Trafalgar, it's possible that none of this would have occurred. Britain's naval supremacy was assured, and allowed her to maintain the largest empire the world has ever known. It remained the world's largest navy until World War II. As for Nelson, he was given a grand state funeral in London. His funeral procession consisted of 32 admirals, over a 100 captains, and an escort of 10,000 soldiers, sailors and marines. Also in attendance was Admiral Villeneuve, who had been captured at Trafalgar. Nelson was laid to rest in St. Paul's Cathedral, where he remains. Today, his legendary status endures as one of Britain's most talented and messianic commanders, and a permanent tribute, Nelson's column stands in Trafalgar Square in London. Join us next time as we look at a battle which confirmed the rise of an Asian superpower from the centuries-old shadows of isolationism contributed to the outbreak of World War I and led directly to the Dreadnought Arms Race. The Battle of Tsushima in 1905 saw the Russians take on the Japanese. The outcome reverberated around the world. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.